0: Good morning, Australia for Christ Church. It's good to be with you, even just if in spirit. Donna and I, some of you will remember Donna and I have been there many times over the past several years, and we were really hoping to be there with you live in person this morning. But of course, COVID has prevented that. I was looking forward to many things, catching up with Pastor Luis and Alexandria and having a meal with them, and maybe a meal with Pastor Michael, and maybe the cheap noodle bar with Pastor Joshua and Aileen, and Of course, uh, the Matthews family, and we could solve the world's political problems all in one meal, that is. We're looking forward to all that, but alas, it's not to be this time. We'll do it another time. Again, my name is Todd Funk, and I'm going to talk with you today. It's kind of a lighthearted topic, but it has some deep implications. I'm going to talk about things my science teacher never told me. Now... Lest you think I need to make a disclaimer, I'm not bagging on science. I'm not bagging on science teachers. As a matter of fact, for 10 years in the United States, I taught science, physical science, earth science, life science, and I, I love science. I think science absolutely rocks. I think it's a phenomenal tool to discover the world around us and make exploration and fantastic tool for what it's used by. Um, but It's only because I've taken so many different science classes over the years, physics and chemistry and um, biology, etc. I graduated from UC Irvine in 1987 with a degree in, in biology that I come to realize that there are many things my science teachers throughout my career had never actually told me. The first thing my science teachers never told me was that science doesn't have all the answers. It cannot have all the answers I love Bill Nye, the science guy. I don't know if he made his way to Australia. I'd be surprised if he didn't. But I used to play his videos in my classrooms all the time. But I just can't agree with his mantra, with his philosophical axiom that science rules. No, God rules. In other words, his axiom is that that any questions that are worth asking can only be answered by modern science. Or put another way, the truth and reality can only be discovered by empirical scientific investigation. And if that were true, well then Monash University there would only have one department, right? The science department. Uh, where would be your history? Where would be your, your you know, mathematics and economics and the arts and the musics and, and whatnot? Um, And so science can't tell us anything about those things. Science is incapable of telling us things about love and beauty and poetry and morality, etc. Trying to learn these kinds of things from science would be kind of like trying to use a microscope or a stethoscope to determine temperature. Well, the microscope and stethoscope are wonderful tools, wonderful instruments for determining and investigating what they're built for but they're completely hopeless and useless in trying to determine temperature. Are they not? And in the same way, science is is impotent in trying to um, get at the base of many important and meaningful things in life. The big worldview questions. Where did we come from? Is there meaning in life? How do we know what's right and wrong? Where are we going, uh, you know, when we die? Those are important questions. For instance, to the question... Why is the water jug boiling? Well, the scientists might answer, well, the, the thermal chemical energy, the latent chemical energy in the gas molecules is released and it 's turned into uh, its con- convection in the water and it 's turned into kinetic energy, and the water molecules have so much kinetic energy that finally, when they reach one hundred degrees C, they escape from being a liquid and into a gaseous state. The layperson asked the same question might say. The water's boiling because I wanted a cup of tea. Now, which is right and which is wrong? Well, they're answering different questions. The scientist is is, is, is answering how is the water boiling. The lay person is answering why is the water boiling. And that's what science is. It gives us a lot of the hows of life, but not the whys of life. So... Science can answer the hows, but not the whys. Another thing my science teachers never told me that we can you can be both a scientist and a believer. You can be a scientist and a Christian. It's a false axiom to be that you can either be a thinker or you're religious. In 2014, there was a very popular debate viewed by several million people throughout the world. Bill Nye, the science guy, was debating um, a creationist named Ken Ham. And Bill Nye put out this, this, this false dichotomy, if you will, that, well, you're either a scientist or you're, you know, you're either a thinker or you're irrational. You're either a scientist and a thinker or you're superstitious. And he began to give forth all these, these, these examples of, well, science has given us cell phones and microwaves and moon landings and vaccines, as if to say, A, that, that a, a Christian believer would have had nothing to do with any of those, but then secondly, that, that somehow religion and Christianity would have impeded that, would have gotten in the way of that, would be a hindrance to science. Many people are unaware, and I think Bill Nye would be blissfully unaware of the history of the foundations of science. Some of the greatest scientists of all times, past and present, have been Christian believers. Let me give you a few examples of some, starting with the most recent, going backwards. Going backwards. Many of you would have heard of Dr. Benjamin Carson. Many see him as the world's foremost neurosurgeon. In 1987, he performed the very first surgery separating co-joined twins. These twins were joined at the head. He separated them successfully. That was Patrick and Ben Binder. Dr. George Ellis of the University of Cape Town has been described by many as being uh, knowing more about cosmology, the universe, the cosmos, than any person alive today. He's a theist. Christopher Isham is probably Britain's leading quantum cosmologist, a believer. Francisco Ayala is one of the leading evolutionary biologists in the world, a Christian believer. Francis Collins, he was formerly the head of the Human Genome Project, which actually they they mapped out the human genome and said what genes are what and where are they in our sequences. Alan Sandage is one of the world's leading astronomers, again, a Christian. Going back in time a little bit, Louis Pasteur in the the 18th century, if you drink pasteurized milk today so as not to get sick, you can thank Louis Pasteur for that. He probably saved more lives than any other scientist alive, uh, living or dead. He had so much Christian humility that he didn't patent any of his inventions at all. He gave them freely to humanity. He even designed experiments to disprove Spontaneous generation. We'll get to that a little bit later. Dr. Gregory Mendel, an Austrian monk. They call him the father of modern genetics. Dr. Robert Boyle was the father of modern chemistry, and he read his Bible every day. Francis Bacon developed the scientific method. In other words, the very method that Bill Nye and other scientists stand on to to, uh, make advancements in science and discoveries and investigations and whatnot was developed by a Christian man, a believer. One of the most well known scientists of all time, Isaac Newton, who obviously formulated the laws of gravity. He said, All my discoveries have been in answer to prayer. When Newton postulated the laws of gravity, some of you are thinking of the drawing of an apple falling on his head as he reads under a tree, he wrote a book called Principia Mathematica. He he didn't say, oh, I've discovered how gravity works, therefore there is no God, we have no need for God. No, he wrote one of the most famous scientific books of all time, Principia Mathematica and in the beginning of that he said, he expressed the hope that it, the book, would persuade the thinking man to believe in God. Johannes Kepler, likewise, he said, if God designed the universe, it must be orderly. He is the one that, that, that came up with the you know, the planetary motions, that they were ellipses and that all the, the earth and the planets went around the sun, not vice versa. So, it's not just that, that they were believers. It's not like I'm just trying to compile a list of believing scientists to try and outweigh or outbalance the unbelieving atheistic scientists. No, 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 not at all. That's not the point. It was that their belief in an orderly, organized God, creator, um, It it enabled us to investigate. Because the the universe was orderly, they they believed it was ordered by God, we could investigate it. We could find out that creation of that all-wise creator. It it pushed them towards investigations, for sure. Johannes Kepler said, The chief end of all investigation of the external world should be to discover the rationale, order, and which has been imposed on it by God, and which he has revealed to us in the language of mathematics. And so it was all about, God is orderly, the planet's orbits um, must be orderly, so let's investigate that and find out how he did it. And there's a reason, it's been well documented in the philosophy and history of science, that, that modern science had its origin in the West, not the East, because the East lacked that Judeo-Christian worldview, that platform that gave it the stability and the impetus to discover an orderly world. You and I take it for granted that the world and universe are are orderly and organized and predictable. But there's absolutely no reason for it to be that way. We just see it as such, and it is such, and it makes the most sense because a predictable, well, an orderly and organized God made it that way. So it gave them a confidence in their explorations with that. Modern science operates on the premise of predictability and orderliness. For instance, water, you can be sure that at sea level, it's going to boil at 100 degrees C all the time. If not, you'd, you, you, you wouldn't be able to do your scientific experiments. You'd wonder if the water was going to boil to do whatever experiment you're doing. You wouldn't be able to have a cup of tea. You might, you might not. Well, today the tea's boiling, the water's boiling, tomorrow it's not. It's because of a predicted, predictable orderly universe. The force of gravity. In when I turned 50, my family got at me a voucher to go skydiving in para, Parakai and jump out of a perfectly good plane. I don't know why. But I didn't have to worry when I jumped out. Was the force of gravity going to be constant that day? Would it be extra hard and I'd slam the, uh, you know, slam the earth to my death? Or would it not be working at all and I'd be, you know, take, forced away or just float up in the atmosphere? It's kind of funny. My dog uh, and my wife, they were waiting for me on the on the paddock down below. And as I was descending down through the sky, hooting and hollering, having a good time, my dog was looking around for me. Spencer was his name, just barking. He heard me. He knew I was there somehow, but he didn't know where I was because he was only looking in two dimensions, length and width, length and width, 365 degrees. It wasn't until he finally looked up a little bit, he saw me, and that's the way, uh, you know, science is. It only has a certain platform or dimension, but there is yet another dimension to discover God and discover about God. The greatest scientists of all times have been, have been struck by how strange it is that the universe is predictable. I mean, it, it follows mathematical patterns. I don't know if any of you have ever heard or seen the, the Fibonacci ratio or what they call golden rectangles. And it is a ratio found in nature all over of, of 1 to 1.61. These rectangles, you see them in, in glaciers and ears, the, the pina of the ear and flowers and cyclones and, and seashells. We see these mathematical patterns all over nature and everybody's perplexed as to why that might be unless there is a mathematical God behind it. Dr. Richard Feynman He was a Nobel Prize winner for quantum electrodynamics and the winner of the Albert Einstein Award. He actually assisted in the development of of the hydrogen bomb. And he said this, he said, Why nature is mathematical is a mystery. The fact that there are rules at all is a kind of miracle. But I'm sorry, Dr. Feynman, you can't have a miracle without a miracle worker, a miracle giver. It's not a miracle. It, it, it follows the, the the inference to the best explanation is there's an orderly God that created that universe. So what he calls a miracle we attribute to the God of the universe. So belief in God has not only not and never been a hindrance to good science and discovery and invention, but it's actually been a pillar on which science has been built and a platform on which modern science has, has operated. Science owes its history and lineage and where it is now to the judeo-christian ethic contrary to what many people think most scientists are not atheists. a lot of people think that thinking people are all atheists and, or mostly atheists but they're not they've been polling doing polls for over a hundred years And the numbers haven't changed much at all. About 40% of all scientists are atheists. They do not believe in God. About 50% of all scientists do believe in God. And roughly 10 or so percent are not sure one way or another. And, you know, there are certain scientific fields like biology where there are a lot of atheists there. It's it's almost like a self-screening thing. You've got to believe in atheistic biology before you can get in the door almost. Um, Although I was a biologist and I managed to... To, to get through uh, almost unscathed. Scientists don't become atheists. Atheists become science. In some of the scientists there, another thing my scientists my sci- my science um, teachers never told me were was that atheism requires a lot of faith. Strict materialism or naturalism, which is the philosophy that says that atoms. And molecules and what you see here on earth is all there is. There is no supernatural domain. There's no supernatural realm. It takes a lot of faith to try and hold that position. In other words, yes, it does take faith to believe in a God that you can't, you can't your physical senses cannot sense him. You can't see him or feel him or hear him or touch him or smell him or taste him. But it doesn't mean he's not there. It does take to believe that, but it also takes a lot of faith to believe certain things without God in the equation. For instance, it takes faith to believe that the entire universe created itself from absolutely nothing. Not a quantum vacuum, but from absolutely nothing and for no real good reason. I mean, how much faith would it take for you to believe that two minutes before the camera started rolling, this pulpit just popped into existence. It just materialized. You think, well, that's absurd. You'd rightly say that's absurd. It goes against everything you've ever seen. Your common everyday experience says things don't just pop into existence. It wouldn't do any good if I said, well, it actually didn't pop into existence two minutes before the camera. It was two days before, two weeks before, two years before. Sorry, Todd, you're not convincing me yet. What if it was What if it was was 13.7 billion years ago, this just popped into existence from, from, from from nothing, nothing at all? It's still absurd. It's still unscientific. You see, what you're doing is when you believe that anything can just pop into existence from nothing, you're entering into a supernatural realm supernatural means beyond, super means above and beyond, above and beyond the natural, beyond the natural laws of nature that govern our universe and our everyday common experience, this is beyond that. You're entering, as it were, the twilight zone, okay? So you'll believe in either in a supernatural God who you can't see, or you'll believe in supernatural events that you cannot prove or reduplicate or have no reason for occurring. It takes a lot of faith to believe that this universe we live in didn't just pop into existence, but it organized itself to a very high degree. If the tech guys at Australia for Christchurch can get the video ready, you'll see a video um, produced that talks about just how orderly and organized the universe
1: is. Imagine the biggest sound desk you have ever seen, like one you would see at a concert. Or to be more exact, imagine a room packed with sound desks. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of dials, buttons, and sliders. A universe where the potential of life exists would require every dial, every button, and every slider to be in an exact position. Let's imagine that slider one controls the Earth's distance from the sun. One nudge closer, and the planet would burn up. A nudge further away, and the whole planet would freeze. A minimal change in gravity would pull us into the sun or spin us out into darkness. Turn down the oxygen even slightly, and life just ceases. The American scientist Francis Collins explains that there are 15 constants in the universe, things like gravity, the speed of light, and the boiling point of water. Each of these constants has precise values.
0: There it is from the late Dr. Stephen Hawking. He's basically saying that it all seems like a god must have done so. Now he didn't believe that before he died, to the best I know, didn't believe in God, Therefore, he believed what seems to be impossible. To me, I make the analogy that it would be like as if you walked into my house, and there's another video here, of you saw this house of cards sitting on my table. And you noticed how ordered it was, not just the order in the structure of it, nice pyramid shape there, but also the order in the suits, the ascending orders of the numbers in the suits. All highly ordered. But then I told you, well, you know how that came about. I just took a deck of cards and flung them in the air. And they stacked themselves like that. You think that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. But you know what? The order that you see in the house of cards is nothing compared to the order of the universe. The finely tuned order of the universe puts the deck of cards to shame. If you ever wanted to do a scientific experiment... Just take a deck of cards, pull them out of the deck, and give them a fling, and see how well things begin to order themselves. As I look on the floor, I don't know if you can see it, but I don't even see two of the same suit close together there. It all seems to be random, half of them are face up and half of them are face down. That's what you would expect from an explosion. Oh yeah, and the big bang was supposedly just a big random explosion. And out of an explosion, a card house comes. Out of an explosion, a universe like ours comes. That is an extreme large amount of faith. faith, And it's going into the supernatural realm. You're looking for something super beyond the natural realm. But if you're an atheist, you don't want a supernatural being. So is it possible for the card house to happen? Possible, maybe. But probable is what I'm looking for. Does it comport to to everyday common experience? And my answer is no. It also takes a huge amount of faith to believe that that life just spontaneously arose from non-life. It's called spontaneous generation. They used to believe it. The atheist scientists did. They believed, for instance, that, that mice spontaneously came from grain bins. It just arose out of nothing from the grain bins. They used to believe that that flies spontaneously arose out of rotting meat. Until finally, it was <clears throat> disproven by the scientists I mentioned, Louis Pasteur and a guy named Francisco Redi. They disproved spontaneous generation. They did the simple experiment that my slide shows. They would notice that hey, if you put this 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 nutrient rich rich broth in a beaker and you left the the top exposed for long enough, the beaker would get cloudy. It would get microorganisms, bacteria and fungi in that. Pasteur said there are living organisms in the air, fungi and bacteria that he didn't know about and couldn't see, that are getting into that thing. And so we did a simple but brilliant experiment. He said let's boil it to kill anything living in it, and then we'll put it in a, a goosenecked flask so nothing can get in to that. And... Voila, the beaker stayed clear. No microorganisms grew in that. That kind of put the nail in the coffin to spontaneous generation or abiogenesis. A means without. A biogenesis, generating life without life. And so from that, Pasteur said all life comes from pre existing life. And no one has been able to prove that otherwise. Now, if you're an atheistic evolution, what you must believe then. Beyond the sciences, well, if you just left that flask that was boiled in past year, if you left it for long enough, a million years, two million years, whatever, 3.5 billion years, life would begin to arrive. That's faith. And it takes a lot of it to believe that that would happen because we've never seen that happen. Right? That is entering the supernatural realm. You're a supernatural person if you are an atheist that don't believe in God. My science teacher never told me that I was worth more than just my chemicals. When I was at UC Irvine, I took biochemistry, and I learned all about uh, biochemistry. And one of my uh, chemistry teachers said, he said, listen, if we, you know, sliced you all up and put you in a centrifuge and spun out all your, your elements that you were made of, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, we could sell you. We could sell those components for about five dollars. It'd be about five dollars worth of of elements and minerals in you. Kind of a grave, grave uh, idea. Beyond that, if we could, you know, add a little order to that. Your skeletal system, for instance, that's worth about ten thousand dollars to science. A good skeletal system. Good corneas to do corneal transplants, are worth $30,000. Your kidneys, as long as you haven't, uh, you know, messed anything up, are worth a couple hundred thousand. Your liver, as long as you haven't drunk too much alcohol or poisoned it with other drugs, is worth a couple hundred thousand. Your lungs, if you haven't smoked too much, are worth $400,000, and your heart is almost a million dollars, $800,000 for your heart. And so it ought to make Pastor Luis a little more, uh, you know, cautious when he goes to these all these different countries walking around he might be thinking oh i'm pretty safe i don't have much money i'm a pastor or whatever Uh, somebody on the black market might say hey we'll kidnap this guy and get a million and a half for all of his organs and stuff your brain is also worth a considerable amount of coin for instance a hard drive like this this is this is a hard drive that's about uh I don't know, a terabyte. Yeah, this is a terabyte high drive. It costed me about $100 for this. So it'll cost you around $100 to store um, a, ter- a terabyte of information. Your brain can store a bit more than this. Your brain can store 2.5 petabytes, P-E-T-A, petabytes. You know, what is a petabyte? A thousand of these things lined up will give you one petabyte. Your brain can store two and a half petabytes of information. That's enough data if you recorded high-definition television uh, 24/7 for three and a half years. That would be one petabyte of information. Crazy. So just think about it. I mean, your brain with two and a half petabytes of information. If you tried to, if you could upload that to the cloud, it would cost about two hundred fifty thousand dollars to store as much as your brain stores up into the cloud. Some mom might think, well, gee, I'm going to call up Google and and tell them, hey, I've got two and a half petabytes of storage space here. My son doesn't use it. He's just sitting here watching video games all day. Can I plug an Ethernet cable into his, his ear and go for that? Speaking of the brain, if they could build a computer to do as much as your brain does, process as much information as fast as it does, it would take about a gigawatt of electricity. That's what's put out by a small nuclear power-generating station. And your brain does so on only 20 watts. Incredible. So a computer to do what your mind does would take about 50,000 times more energy to do so. But what my science teacher didn't tell me, what none of them could tell me, was that you and I are worth so much more than our chemicals, our skeleton, our bones, our kidneys, our liver. Uh, We are worth so much more than the market value. We have infinite value, intrinsic infinite value to God, because we were made by a loving God in His very image, different than all the other animals. God breathed His Spirit into us, imparting to us the Imago Dei, the image of God. You're of infinite worth and value. Nothing could ever purchase you, and it's and it's it's intrinsic. In other words, you don't have to do anything for this. You don't have to not do anything for this. You're precious and important to God, so much so that He sent His only Son on earth to die on a cross for you. So, in conclusion then, there's only two possible stories. Two possible stories. With and without God. The story without God goes like this. That about three and a half billion years ago, you descended from, you, 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 you're, there was a primordial protoplasmic blob that washed up, onto an ocean shore somewhere, um, and as a product of basically lucky mud and time and chance, pure chance, there you are. There we are. There the human race is. That makes you really without any significance or value. Your your life is, is cosmically significant. You're no more significant from the mud from which you supposedly came from. Morality and right and wrong are just very arbitrary. And when you die, you will return to that mud. I think what I've showed you about the impossibility of life without God and our universe without God, I think it shows that there's, there's quite a different story. The other story, is like uh, uh, the first story was a nightmare. The other story is a story that God created you, as I said, purposely. God created you lovingly. God made you specifically with a purpose in mind, and he made you to live forever and enjoy him forever. There is right and wrong. There is an eternity. There is an existence outside of this physical life. And, and, and I think the yearning in man's souls uh, tells us that. There's got to be something more than this life. There's got to be something more than my common everyday experience. And You know what there is? God wants you to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to do just that. I didn't mention it, but but when I was at the University of California, Irvine, I was in a backslidden state, meaning I wasn't living for God, I was living very selfishly. I knew better, but I was living selfishly for myself. And the godless theory of evolution was being hammered down my throat, and there were girls around, and everything, the, the, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, everything I wanted was there, but I had one thing missing. It was the connection with God that I had had as a younger person. I didn't have the peace of God in my life, despite all the things, I had a motorcycle and a track scholarship, I didn't have that peace and relationship with God and I missed that and I knew it was missing. And so even though everything was hammering against it, I I recommitted my life to Christ in 1983. It was the best decision of my life, the peace of God flooded back into my soul. The God of my childhood was there.